Section 36 of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter 5 The Bird Nesters. It was near the same time of the day on that Saturday spent by Sieur Clubin at Torteval that a singular incident occurred, which was not extensively noised abroad at first in the country, and which was only made known long afterwards. For many things, as we have just remarked, remain unknown because of the fright which they cause in those who have witnessed them. On the night between Saturday and Sunday, we mention the date with precision, and we think it is exact, three children climbed over the heights of Plémont. These children were returning to the village. They came from the sea. They were what is called in the local idiom Deniquoiseaux, read Deniche oiseaux, bird nesters. Wherever there are cliffs and holes in the rocks above the sea, young bird nesters abound. We have said a few words on this point already. The reader will remember that Gilliatt took an interest in it, because of the birds and of the children. The bird nesters are a sort of sea gammon, not very timid. The night was very dark. Thick masses of clouds, piled upon each other, concealed the horizon. Three o'clock in the morning had just sounded from the church tower of Torteval, which is round and pointed and resembles a magician's cap. Why were these children returning so late? Nothing more simple. They had been on a hunt for seagulls' nests in the Tas de Poivre-de-Val. The season having been very mild, the pairing of the seabirds had begun very early. These children, in watching the conduct of the males and females around their nests, and absorbed in the eagerness of this pursuit, had forgotten the hour. The flood-tide had surrounded them. They had not been able to regain in season the little inlet where they had moored their boat, and they had been obliged to wait on one of the points of the Tas de Pois until the ebb-tide, hence their late return. These returns are awaited with feverish anxiety by mothers who, on finding them safe, manifest their joy in anger, and relieve their tears by administering punches on the head. They were accordingly in haste and decidedly uneasy. Their haste was of that kind which willingly tarries, and which includes a reluctance to arrive. They had in prospect a kiss, to be followed with cuffs on the ear. Only one of those children had nothing to fear. He was an orphan. This boy was French, without either father or mother, and quite content at that moment to have no mother. As no one took any interest in him, he would not receive a beating. The other two were Guernsey lads, and of that same parish of Torteval. The lofty ridge of rocks scaled, the three bird-nesters arrived on the plateau whereon stands the haunted house. They began by being afraid, which is the duty of every passer-by, and above all of every child, at that hour and in that spot. They were very anxious to run away at full speed, and they were very anxious to stop and look. They paused. They gazed at the house. It was all dark and formidable. It was an obscure block in the midst of the deserted plateau, a symmetrical but hideous excrescence, 
a lofty square mass with right-angled corners somewhat similar to an immense altar of darkness the children's first thought had been to run their second was to approach it they had never seen this house at that hour there is such a thing as the curiosity of fear they had a little french lad with them which emboldened them to approach it is well known that the french fear nothing besides to be many in a danger is reassuring to share fear among three is encouraging and then they are hunters they are children all three of them together do not number thirty years they are on a quest they are rummaging they are spying out hidden things can they stop on the road they thrust their heads into the hole how can they avoid advancing into this hole he who is on a hunting expedition allows himself to be carried away with the excitement of the chase he who goes on an excursion for discovery is caught in a set of gearing wheels having gazed so much into the nests of bird gives one a taste for looking a little into a nest of specters pry about a bit in the infernal regions why not from prey to prey one comes to the demon after sparrows hobgoblins the boys proceeded to investigate the real state of the case with regard to all the fears which their parents had instilled in their minds nothing is more seductive than to be on the track of hobgoblin tales the idea of knowing as much about them as the good wives is tempting all this mixture of ideas in a state of half confusion and half instinct in the minds of these guernsey bird-nesters had their temerity as a result they went towards the house and the small boy who served as their mainstay in this bit of daring was worthy of the position he was a resolute lad an apprentice to a ship-calker one of those children who are already men he slept at the shipyard under a shed on straw earned his own living had a loud voice liked to climb walls and trees cherishing no prejudice against apples that came within his reach he had worked at repairing war vessels the son of chance a child of luck a gay orphan born in france no one knew where two reasons for being bold thinking nothing of giving a penny to a poor woman very mischievous but good-hearted sandy-haired and one who had talked with parisians at that time he was earning a shilling a day at caulking fishing vessels under repair at the pecaries when the fancy seized him he allowed himself a holiday and went bird-nesting such was the little french boy the solitude of the place had something indescribably funereal about it they felt conscious of its threatening aspect it was wild and savage this plateau silent and bare terminated in a precipice at a very short distance from its steep slope the sea below was still there was no wind not a blade of grass stirred the little bird-nesters advanced slowly the french lad at their head staring at the house the while one of them afterwards in narrating the story or as much of it as he still remembered added it said nothing they approached holding their breath 
as one might approach a wild animal. They had climbed the steep hill which lies behind the house and which ends on the side of the sea in a little isthmus of rocks, almost inaccessible. They had come quite close to the building, but they saw only the south front, which is all walled up. They did not dare to turn to the left, which would have exposed to them the other front where there are two terrible windows. Nevertheless, they grew bolder, the caulker's apprentice having said to them, Let's veer to larboard. Now that's the fine side. We must see the black windows. They veered to larboard and reached the other side of the house. The two windows were lighted up. The boys fled. When they were some distance away, the little French lad turned round. Stay, said he. The lights have disappeared. In fact, there was no longer any light in the windows. The silhouette of the house was outlined against the vague lividness of the sky, as though stamped out with a punch. Fear did not vanish, but curiosity came back. The bird-nesters approached once more. All at once the light reappeared simultaneously at both windows. The two Tortval boys took to their heels and fled. The little imp of a French lad did not advance, neither did he retreat. The light vanished, then flashed forth again. Nothing could be more horrible. The reflection made a vague streak of light on the grass wet with the dew. At one time the light cast upon the inner wall of the house great black profiles which moved, and shadows of enormous heads. However, as the house had neither partitions nor ceiling, having no longer anything but the four walls and the roof, one window could not be lighted without the other being lighted also. Perceiving that the caulker's apprentice remained, the other two bird-nesters returned, step by step, one following the other, trembling and curious. The caulker's apprentice said to them in a low voice, "'There are ghosts in the house. I saw the nose of one of them.' The two little fellows from Tortval hid behind the French lad, and raised on tiptoe over his shoulders, sheltered by him, using him as a shield, opposing him to the thing, reassured by having him between them and the vision, gazed likewise. The house seemed to be gazing at them in its turn. In that vast, mute darkness it had two red eyeballs. They were the windows. The light vanished, reappeared, vanished again, as such lights do. These sinister intermissions are probably caused by the opening and shutting of hell. <laughs> the vent hole of the sepulchre produces effects like those of a dark lantern. All at once a very opaque blackness in human form rose past one of the windows, as though it came from outside, then plunged into the interior of the house. It seemed as though someone had just entered. It is the habit of ghosts to enter through the window. The light was more brilliant for a moment, then it was extinguished and did not again reappear. Then noises were heard there. These noises resembled voices. <laughs> it is always like that. When one sees, one does not hear. When one hears, one does not see. Night on the sea has a peculiar silence. The stillness is more profound there than elsewhere. 
then there is neither wind nor surge in that moving expanse. Where, ordinarily, the flight of eagles could not be heard, one can hear the movements of a fly. This sepulchral quiet lent a somber relief to the sounds which proceeded from the building. Let us see, said the little French boy, and he took a step towards the house. The other two were so afraid that they decided to follow him. They dared not run away alone. Just as they had passed a large pile of faggots, which, in some inexplicable manner, reassured them in this solitude, a sparrow-owl flew out of a bush. This rustled the branches. Sparrow-owls have an awkward way of flying, with a suspicious sidelong swoop. The bird passed in a slanting direction close to the children, fixing its round clear eyes upon them through the darkness. There was no little trembling in the group behind the little Frenchman. He said to the bird, "'Sparrow, you come too late. I want to see,' and he advanced. The greeking of his coarse, hobnailed shoes on the gorse did not prevent their hearing the noises, which rose and fell with the calm accentuation and continuity of a dialogue. A moment later he added, "'Besides, only fools believe in ghosts.' Insolence in the midst of danger rallies cowards and urges them forward. The two Tortfall boys resumed their march, treading in the footsteps of the caulker's apprentice. The haunted house seemed to them to increase immensely in size. In this optical illusion of fear there was some reality. The house actually did grow larger, because they were approaching it. In the meantime, the voices inside the house became more and more distinct. The children listened. The ear also has its power of exaggeration. It was something different from a murmur, m more than a whisper, less than an uproar. At times a word or two, clearly articulated, was detached from the rest. These words, which it was impossible to understand, sounded strangely. The boys halted, listened, then began their advance again. "'Tis the ghosts talking,' muttered the caulker's apprentice. "'But I don't believe in ghosts.' The Tortval children were greatly tempted to fall back behind the pile of faggots, but they were already a long way from it, and their friend, the caulker, continued to walk towards the house. They trembled at remaining with him, and they dared not leave him. Step by step, and in perplexity, they followed him. The caulker's apprentice turned toward them and said, "'You know that it is not true. There are none.' The house grew higher and higher. The voices became more and more distinct. They drew nearer. As they approached, they perceived that there was something like a muffled light in the house. It was a very vague light, like one of those dark lanterns effects just mentioned, and which are common in the illumination of witches' meetings. When they were very close, they halted. One of the two Tortval boys ventured this remark. They are not ghosts. They are the ladies in white. What's that dangling from the window? asked the other. It appears to be a rope. It is a snake. Tis the hangman's rope, said the French lad authoritatively. That suits them. But I don't believe it and in three bounds, rather than in three steps, he reached the base of the wall of the building. 
there was something feverish about this boldness. The other two imitated him shivering and placed themselves very close to him, one pressing his right side, the other his left. The boys applied their ears to the wall. The talking in the house continued. This is what the phantoms were saying. Note, the whole conversation was in Spanish. So tis settled? Settled. Tis said? Yes, said. A man is to wait here and go to England with Blasquito? By paying for it. By paying for it. Blasquito will take the man in his bark. Without seeking to learn from what country he comes? That does not concern us. Without inquiring his name? We ask no names. We weigh purses. Good. The man will wait in this house. He must have something to eat. He shall have it. Where? In this bag which I have brought. Very good. Can I leave the bag here? Smugglers are not thieves. And when do the rest of you set out? Tomorrow morning. If your man were ready, he might come with us. He is not ready. Well, that's his affair. How many days will he have to wait in this house? Two, three, four days, more or less. Is it certain that Blasquito will come? Certain. Here, to Plainmont? To Plainmont. What week? Next week. What day? Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. He cannot fail? He is my tocayo. Will he come in any weather? At any time. He knows no fear. I am Blasco. He is Blasquito. So he cannot fail to come to Guernsey? I come one month. He comes the next month. I understand. Counting from Saturday next, the week from today, five days will not pass before Blasquito arrives. But if the sea be very rough, Eguralia Geistau. Basque, bad weather. Yes. Blasquito will not come so quickly, but he will come. Where is he coming from? From Bilbao. Where is he going? To Portland. That is well. Or to Torbay. That is better. Your man may rest easy. Blasquito will not betray him? Cowards are traitors. We are brave men. The sea is the church of winter. Treachery is the church of hell. No one can hear what we are saying. It is impossible to hear or to see us. Fear creates a desert here. I know it. Who would dare to run the risk of listening to us? That is true. Besides, if anyone were to listen, he would not understand. We are speaking a wild language which no one here knows. Since you speak it, it means that you are one of us. I have only come to make arrangements with you. That is well. Now I am going. So be it. Tell me, what if the passenger should wish Blasquito to take him elsewhere than to Portland or to Torbay? Let him bring doubloons. Will Blasquito do what the man wishes? Blasquito will do what the doubloons command. Does it take much time to go to Torbay? As it pleases the wind. Eight hours? More or less. Will Blasquito obey his passenger? If the sea obeys Blasquito. He will be well paid. 
Gold is gold. The wind is the wind. <laughs> that is true. Man with gold can do what he will. God does what he will with the wind. The man who counts on going with Blasquito will be here on Friday. Good. And what time will Blasquito arrive? At night. He arrives at night. He departs at night. We have a wife whose name is the Sea, and a sister whose name is Night. The wife sometimes deceives, the sister never. All is settled. Farewell, men. Good night. A drop of brandy? Thanks. Tis better than syrup. I have your word. My name is Point of Honor. Farewell. You are a gentleman, and I am a caballero. It was clear that devils alone could talk thus. The children listened no longer, and this time took to flight for good, the little Frenchman convinced at last, running even faster than the others. On the Tuesday which followed this Saturday, Sieur Clubin was again in St. Malo with the Durande. The Tamaulipas was still lying in the roadstead. Sieur Clubin asked the innkeeper of the Jean Tavern, between two whiffs of his pipe, "'Well, and when does that Tamaulipas sail?' "'Day after tomorrow, Thursday,' replied the innkeeper. That evening Clubin supped at the table of the Coast Guardsmen, and contrary to his custom he went out after supper. The result of this absence was that he could not attend to the Durand's office and almost lost his cargo. This was noticed in so punctual a man. It appeared that he conversed for a few minutes with his friend the money-changer. He returned two hours after Noquette had sounded the curfew. The Brazilian bell rings at ten o'clock. Hence it was midnight. End of chapter 5 The Bird Nesters 